like to ask you to uh, join me in a word of prayer as we ask the Lord to uh, prepare our hearts to receive from his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for how many uh, beautiful aspects of who you are we are reminded of in the singing. We pray now that as we enter a time of opening up scripture to hear what you have to say, help us to learn it well, help us to live it well, and we need you for that. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, as we think about uh, Paul's close to this letter, uh, the book of Romans, um, we can think of all of the ways in which he's called us to live holy lives, and There are a couple different ways you can go about this. I mean, you can go about it the way many people think about it, which is you come to church, you get a rip-roaring sermon. Probably won't get one here, but um, it's a pick-yourself-up-by-the-bootstrap sermon. It's the girl-wash-your-face sermon. Uh, It's the you-can-do-it sermon. It's if you just develop the right habits, you'll get it. you're so awesome, you just need to believe in yourself. But that puts you in this sort of cycle that ends up being quite depressing because you make a little change here, and as you develop better habits here, you discover this is a bad habit too. And once you kill one monster in the closet, you realize there was another one under the bed. And the more you make progress, the more you realize this progress will never end because we're not perfect then you realize you never really killed that monster because a month later, a a year later, maybe a couple days later, it came back out. And you thought, man, I thought I changed. I thought I killed that. And then you didn't kill it. Some of you start realizing you killed the habit, but you didn't kill the heart problem that underlies that habit. So you can uh, be given to excessive drinking And then get in trouble with the law, get in trouble with family, get in trouble with your spouse and realize I really shouldn't do that. It's messing up my life. And you can stop the drinking, but did you really address what drove you to the excess? Twelve steps won't hammer that. And so it can be pretty depressing to come to church and hear all the things you're supposed to do and the things that you're not supposed to do. And every week you try to do better. And then next week you find out another list of things you're not supposed to do and the things you're supposed to do. Just in Romans, the second half, you remember the first 11 chapters, he's like, here's what you need to believe. And then in the second half, he, he kind of turns his attention to here's what you need to do once you believe that. And it's a lot of do's and don'ts. In fact, it's actually don'ts and do's. He, he usually puts the don't first and then tells you what to do. Don't, don't do that, do this. Don't do that, do this. You remember right at the start of chapter 12, he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Don't be conformed to what the world does, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and do what God wants you to do. He tells the Roman Christians, don't think too highly of yourselves. Don't do that. Do what? Serve one another with your gifts. Belong to one another. Live into that being members of one another. He tells us to not love evil. He says, abhor evil and cling to that which is good. That's pretty broad. Every time you discover something's evil, okay, that's something I'm supposed to push aside, not do. And then when you discover what God calls good, that's the thing that you embrace. That is constant and weighty. 
And then just as you get going, you're like, this is a tough thing, this Christian life. I'm trying, but it's really hard. And you look at people next to you like, well, it doesn't look like they're trying that hard anymore. Maybe I could dial it back a notch. And then he says, don't be slothful, but serve the Lord with fervor. So, so, so Paul's not content with the Roman Christian just kind of eat along in the Christian life, but run hard. You're not allowed to drag your feet. Push, strive, run. Ugh. And he says, with regard to governing authorities, may not be the people you voted for, may not like what they're saying, but don't resist authorities. Do good. Remember, that's Romans 13. What about when people persecute you? Well, when people persecute you, don't curse them. Bless them. Again, don't do this. Do that. Is that hard to do? When you're being persecuted to bless them in return? Yeah, that's hard. Don't be slothful. Do it. Do what's right. Don't owe anybody anything. Don't have debt except one debt, love. Love. Cast off works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Stop doing the things that are evil and cling to the things that are of Christ, that match Christ inside the church. Don't quarrel over opinions. Don't judge each other over things that aren't clearly proven in Scripture, but welcome one another. Welcome one another. Is that hard to do? Some days more than others. So the reason why I go through this list is to first remind you that we don't want to say, well, because we can't do it perfectly, we might as well just go in the opposite direction and be the kind of church that's just like, God supplies grace. We shouldn't preach don'ts and do's. We shouldn't preach do's and don'ts. A preacher asked me that recently, not too recently, but several years ago, like, hey, he's a pre- he preaches every Sunday, right? And he's like, should I, should I preach do's and don'ts? And I'll, it, you know, what the snarky answer that came to my head was, what are you going to, what scripture are you going to preach? This full of do's and don'ts. You'll never preach through Romans, brother? But I understand his struggle because when you stand up here and tell the people, don't do this, do that. Don't do this, do that. And as we go out, some of us are like, oh, I can't. It's too weighty. Some of us are like, I think I can. I think I got that. And then you go out there and then you fail. It becomes discouraging to the point of maybe not attending church anymore because I'm sick of hearing do's and don'ts that I can't, I can't live up to, that I can't live into. But as a church, we can't just dump the do's and don'ts because I've got very limited scripture to preach from if, if there's no do's and don'ts. It's God's word. And as we move through Romans, he's very serious about don't do these things, but, but do these things. He expects it of them. But at the same time, where do we learn that we're unable, that we're unable, that we fall short of God's glory? Where do we learn that? The same book. It's not like some other book in the Bible, you know, wow, here he tells us to do stuff. And in some other book, he tells us we're unable to do stuff. In the same book, he takes 11 chapters to tell you, you can't do it. You think you're righteous? You can't be righteous. You fall short. But I, was, I did a good thing yesterday. Here's God's glory. Here's what you did yesterday. Here's his glory. There's the bar. You're way down there. You're like, oh, that's kind of depressing. And then when he turns to chapter 12, he's like, don't do this. Do that. Don't do this. Don't. Which one is it, Paul? Which one is it? Can I do it or can I not do it? 
Well, the answer is yes. Because you can't do it on your own. And he wants the last note he leaves you with. He wants you to leave the letter to the Romans encouraged to not do the things he wants you to not do and to do the things he wants you to do. Look at the end of Romans. We're at the end, last paragraph of chapter 16. Let's just look at the first phrase. I'm not going to preach one phrase at a time, I promise. But just for this, for the beginning portion, just look how he sets it up. Now to him who was able to strengthen you. That's the answer. I mean, you're supposed to do it. It's when we go, okay, good sermon. I got it. This week I'm going to do it. I got it. Our prayers start sounding like I got it prayers. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Sorry about last week. I got it this week. I got it. I know I messed up last time, but I'm going to get to it this time. I just read a book. I just developed some habits. I plugged it in my calendar. I've got an accountability partner. I got it. Paul says no. He says, we, I want to turn your attention to the one who was able to strengthen you. And the reason why we end on the note of turning our attention to the one who's able to strengthen you is because if we live a I got it Christianity, you will struggle, you will fail, and that is depressing. And if you live a Christianity that ignores the do's and don'ts, that's not Christianity at all. What is Christianity? Turning our attention to the one from whom we receive strength to not do the things that pull at us and tug at us and to do the things that are like, oh, I really don't feel like doing that. Even to the minuscule things. This presses into all of life. We turn our attention to our source of strength, which is not my ability, which is not my my convincing myself, nothing here about believing in myself. What I believe about myself is I'm unable. That's what I believe about myself. I can't do it. I might, I might fake it for a couple days, but I run out of gas really quickly. But here's this never-ending, completely sufficient source of power. And he's able to do it. He's able to do it. God proves his ability all throughout Scripture over and over and over. Every miracle, every astounding episode, whether it's Joshua and his men walking circles around the city so that the walls of Jericho fall, do you think those soldiers were like, man, I stomped really hard. Were you stomping? I don't think you were stomping as hard as me. I think mainly the first crack in that wall was my sandals. Why does God make them do goofy stuff like that? So that their only uh, point of praise is to look back and go, man, God did that. I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't do that. I did something, but the thing that I did didn't cause the wall to fall. All I did was, he said, walk around, and so I just did that because he told me to, and he did something we can't do all throughout, all throughout Scripture. We ran out of wine. It's a party. We're utterly embarrassed. There's nothing I can do. We can't just run to the vineyard. We can't start crushing new grapes. Jesus goes, shh, I did it. It's wine now. What are all of the miracles about? I can't walk. I can't use my legs. 
Jesus touches him. He grabs his mat and goes home. You can't, I can. And that's where the two meet together. He doesn't say, well, you're, you're, you can't do it yourself. I guess you just, you're out. Something happens there where God supplies the ability for the person to then experience the thing that God wants them to do all throughout Scripture. And so Paul doesn't leave on a note of welcome each other, do a bunch of things that you're supposed to do, recognize what's good, cling to it, avoid what's evil, good night. It's do all those things, recognizing we draw strength from the one who's able to give it to you. He's able to give it to you. You might be here this morning, you feel like, man, I'm really unable. I, don't, I almost didn't even come to church today. I'm just really unable. You're in a better place than the person who came to church today because they think they're able. That the, the, the number one way to put a wall between you and God is, I got this. But when you're like, I, I, don't, I don't have this at all. Good, you're rounding first base. Come on home. But the person who's like, I, I've got this, I've got this, take a couple swings, step up at the plate. I see the pitch as well. No, you don't. You're not even on the team when you're in that mindset. But he says, there's hope. And there is ability. It's just not my ability. It's not our ability. It's ability that we draw from God to him who is able to strengthen you. And how does he do it? How does God strengthen you? Well, he strengthens you in a particular way. But first, I want you to see why he does it. Why does God do it? Does God love you, Christian? Yes. That's not the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason is he wants to show off that he can knock down walls. He wants to show off that he can make water wine. He wants to show off that he has the ability to make someone who can't walk, walk. Someone who can't see, see. Someone who can't hear, hear. For that person to go, whoa, it was a little bit of me. I had to do that a couple times. Now I can hear, and God kind of did the rest. It was, I couldn't walk, I couldn't hear, I couldn't see. Jesus touched me, and now I completely see. Look at how this sentence operates. It's a really long sentence, okay? Paul wouldn't really pass most of our English 101 classes. But here's how the sentence works. Look, now to him who was able to strengthen you, and then he goes, according to this, according to this, according to this, according to this. That's what makes the sentence really long. But here's the end of the sentence. Be glory forever through Jesus Christ. That's the end of verse 27. So a really long sentence with a bunch of stuff in between. But the sentence really is, now to him who was able to strengthen you, be glory forever. Now all the in-between stuff, he's going to tell you, how does he get that glory? According to what does he strengthen you? And we're going to look at that. But I just want you to see the reason why he does it is to show off. Now when you and I show off, we're just being jerks. You know what I'm saying? Like we, when, when I'm like, hey, did you see that? Did you see how awesome I was? When you, it, doesn't, it doesn't suit you well. All right, when you point out to others your own praises. You know, and the reason why is because you're not all that, you know? We're not supposed to worship ourselves. We're supposed to put each other first. But the reason why it's not show-offy and in a sinful way for God is because he is all that. 
And there's no one else for him to acquiesce to. There's no one else for him to point to. He's at the top. He's fully beautiful and glorious and holy. And it's right for him to secure praise. And if he allows us to think that we've got it, we end up at a dead end. That was really the difference between Judas and Peter, wasn't it? Judas didn't know where to take his stuff. He didn't know where to take it. I've got to deal with it myself. He ends up hanging himself. Peter's like, what do I do with my stuff? And Jesus sits with him and he's like, I'm restoring you. I prayed for you. Feed my sheep. And then Peter doesn't question, I can't feed your sheep. I already messed up. He recognizes, okay, you're doing something in me such that I can now do. I draw my strength and my ability from you in that time where I recognize I'm unable to do it. Up until that point, Peter was like, I got it. You're going to follow me? I'll follow you to the death. Man, you're not going to follow me to the death. You're going to deny me three times. Then, you're going to recognize, oh, snap, I just betrayed Jesus. Up until that, that, that moment, well, that rooster uh, assigned by God, Peter was like, I got this. I got this, I got this. He was ready to pull out his sword. He was ready to go do battle. He thought he was ready to go to the death, and he wasn't. He wasn't ready. He was unable. I think when that rooster crowed, he realized in his heart, man, he was crushed by his own inability. Now, Peter, you're ready. Now you're ready. God gets glory and secures that glory for himself forever by taking people that can't do it, recognize they can't, and he makes them able to do it. That's why we can't ignore do's and don'ts. Because God wants to show off. You know how he wants to show off today, now? Not by walking, knocking down walls around a city. Not by, you know, serving refills up at a wedding. By changing you. And making you able to do the things that Paul says you should do. And you look at it, you're like, man, I, I don't know if I could do that. I know, we, that's good. First base. Then you come to God and say, God, I need this change in my life. And he steps in your life and makes you able to do and able to not do, able to say no. That's how weak we are. We're unable to say no to certain things. And we're unable to say yes to the things we need to, but we draw strength from God who is able to do it. Now, how is he able to do it? Here's the in-between stuff. According to my gospel, according to the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Amazing. That's a really long way of saying according to the gospel. And then he unpacks that gospel, right? But the gospel is the good news. The word literally means good news. And the good news follows from the bad news. The bad news is, well, you can't do it. You fall short. Oh, I guess I'm stuck. You would be stuck. Then Jesus Christ came, took that death that we deserved. We can't match glory, so Jesus matched it for us. And then took the death for our rebellion and then brought us into a life, a new life, a new covenant. You remember what we read when we took communion? This is a new covenant a relationship with God, and and he's doing something in that relationship, and he's making us into the people he wants us to be. So he says, how was God able to strengthen you? I know it's true. 
and I know how he does it. It's according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came on the scene explaining this. And now listen, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, all the books of the Old Testament, have you ever tried to read through them and you're like, I'm not exactly sure what's going on. Join the club. They didn't know totally what was going on. Even the original audience in the Old Testament, like, I think I get it. But it's not fully revealed yet. It's not that Jesus came on the scene and changed the story. Remember the Old Testament? I know, that was weird. You know, full stop, we're, just start, we're scrapping it, we're pretending that never happened, and we're starting over with this series now. No. He says, if you go back and really look at it carefully, you'll see all along the story was the same, actually. It was kind of mysterious and hidden in the beginning. But when Jesus came on the scene and explained it to his apostles, his apostles like, oh! And they start preaching from the Old Testament the clear truth of the gospel that was always there. It was always there. It just was kind of hard to see. So that's why he says it was a mystery. It was a sort of a hidden secret for a long time. And Jesus came on the scene preaching it, revealing it, explaining it. It's like you watch a movie, it's kind of confusing, you're not sure the director was, was he on something, like what, it doesn't, you don't really get it, and then some fanboy explains it to you, and you're like, oh, and then you go back and watch, you're like, oh, and it's consistent, a good movie will do that. There's some big reveal at the end, and then when you start it again from scene one, you see that all the, the whole time, you just didn't see it, but it was there, leading to this opening, ending of the plot. And so when he says it's been there from the Old Testament, and it's now, verse 29, has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. So there's a secret thing all along that is now revealed. And what was so confusing that is now clear? Well, there's a lot of things, but I think the main thing is how those walls fell. How those walls fell. Faith. Now, you could read the Old Testament like, okay, God says to do things, and if I do it, and I march in the direction he tells me, then he sends a blessing in my life. I do something, God responds. I rub the genie lamp, he gives me a wish. I put a coin in the vending machine, a little gift pops out. And if I just keep feeding coins, little gifts keep popping out, and we'll just keep this relationship. I'll go to church, I'll tithe, he gives me a little something. That is not what the Old Testament teaches Rather, the marching around the city was faith. Because we're going to look like idiots just walking in circles. And then, boop doo <laughs> What are you blowing your trumpet for, man? They're looking at the horizon. You have an, an extra army coming? The, is the trumpet sounding another army? No, the trumpet is sounding God's action. The trumpet is sounding what we can't do, but God is going to do. I think you should at some point, I referenced this a couple Sundays ago, but you should read through the Hall of Faith in Romans, uh, Hebrews 11. Have you heard of that? We've heard of the Hall of Fame. We call this the Hall of Faith because the author to the Hebrews is like, go back and think about the Old Testament figures in the Old Testament, the, pe- the characters in the Old Testament. They, they operated by faith. And what he's saying is it's always been that way. So some, we've read the Old Testament stories, but... We don't always necessarily see them as stories of faith. And he's saying that, that's, what actually, that's what they were. Have you ever read 
Cain and Abel, they each bring sacrifices to God. And God is like, Abel, I love it. I love it. Thank you for that. Cain, this is terrible, man. I don't know. What, what is this? They both brought sacrifices. Scholars scratching their head. They're trying to figure out maybe God really liked fruit. He wasn't ready for animals yet. Or really liked animals, didn't like fruit. Which one is it? Well, then later in the Old Testament, he demands both. So it really can't be that. Maybe one of them brought the best of it, and the other one brought the leftovers. But it doesn't really say that. What does the author of Hebrews tell us? Abel offered his by faith. What did Cain lack? What he lacked wasn't on the table. What he lacked was in his heart. Such that Abel came as someone who offered something in faith. God, I I trust you with this. I trust you with my life. I'm not ingratiating myself with you. I'm not coming to you. I got this, God. I got this. Look at this. Look at this layout I got for you here. Look at this abundance. He's like, God, I want to serve you. Here's this. Cain came like, I got this. Such that when God was upset with the sacrifice, Cain was like, how could you not? Look at this. I said I got this, and I got it, and you don't like it. I hate you. The difference was not what was on the table. The difference was faith. You press through, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 says that Sarah, Sarah conceived her child by faith. Have you read Sarah's story? Because she doesn't seem very faithful. Right? Not to be a downer on Mother's Day, but... I mean, when she first heard, like, God was like, I'm going to give you a child. She's like, <laughs> that's stupid. To God. I mean, not in front of him. She tried to play it off like, I didn't laugh. The angel was like, yes, you did. But you read the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, and the author of Hebrews tells us she, she was too weak of body to conceive. But she eventually was, she received power, he says. Sarah received power to conceive through faith. Why? This is not a message about if you've been unable to have a baby, just have enough faith. That's, that's not the point. God brought an angel to her tent and said, hey, I'm going to make you conceive with a child. And she took a long time to believe it. Her and Abraham didn't believe it when they were in Abimelech's house. They didn't believe it when they were in Pharaoh's house. To the point where she's like, look, this is taking too long. We need to do something about it. And then the Hagar thing happened. You remember that? That's them trying to, I got this, I got this. Let's do this Hagar thing. It's the I got this thing that ruins stuff, right? What the author of Hebrews is saying is eventually she broke down, stopped trying to do stuff in her own strength, and received power to do what God said. Third example, because it's really weird. He goes through Abraham, right? Abraham offered Isaac in faith. And he starts listening. I don't have time to go into all these names, Gideon. And you're like, Gideon? I mean, I guess I could get there. He's like, Samson. You're like, Samson? Now, I know some of you grew up in Sunday school and big posters of Samson, and he's like this awesome dude. But if you read Samson's story, you hate him. He's terrible. He's a womanizer. He disrespects his parents. He, he makes his parents unclean by feeding them stuff out of a carcass. I mean, you and I wouldn't do that, and we don't even live in Jewish. Would you walk by a carcass, pull food out of it, and be like, Mom, ha- happy Mother's Day. I got this off of the rib of a 
a dead body. But on top of that is the Jewish unclean laws, right? And he's like, here, honey, he's killing people. This isn't, this isn't a comic book. He's not stalking dark alleys, killing like robbers. He's killing people that messed up his wedding. I hate you. He's, he's a gnarly figure. And then in the book of Hebrews, Samson ends up in the hall of faith. You're like, what? What? I think it's the end of his life where his eyes had been gouged out, his hair had been cut, and he's got no strength and he's chained to the pillars of the house where the enemies of God are celebrating. We have conquered. We got this. Eh, He killed these people. He killed those people. He was God's man, but now he's ours and we've chained them up. Take that, Yahweh. Our gods are stronger. We've got this. And what does Samson pray? Very similar to the prayer of the thief on the cross. Lord, please remember me. He knows he's about to die. And he asks God for a request. Strengthen me one more time. Remember me. Strengthen me one more time. And do something through me here. I think that was a prayer of faith. So he lives this long, messed up life, and right at the end, like the thief on the cross, they didn't have time to make it up to God. God, would you please give me time to outdo all the bad stuff I did and do good stuff to kind of even it out. And once I even the scales, then I'm ready to go to glory. I think Samson recognizes he's been horrible this entire time. Well, why should God grant him his request at the end? Faith. Not earning it, faith in the moment. The author of Hebrews tells us pretty clearly in that passage. He says, they were made strong out of weakness. Abel was the weaker one because he gets killed by his brother. But he's the one with faith. Sarah's unable to have a child, but she's the one that has the child that brings anybody into adoption in the whole world. Sarah becomes the mother of nations. But she didn't get that until she was at the point of utter weakness. I can't do it. Samson was terrible when he lived his life according to his own strength. It's when he was depleted of strength, recognizes he doesn't have anything. Then God was able to give him real strength, the strength of faith. And what I tell you is if it feels disheartening to come to church and to listen to sermons that say don't do this and do that and it feels disheartening, it's only disheartening if we leave here going, I got this. But this is exactly where God does not want us to be. He wants us to be in a place where we go, I want to do that and I want to stop doing these things. God, would you remember me? Would you help me? Would you give me the strength? And what does Paul say? Notice Paul doesn't end it with an exhortation. Now be strong. He just is banking on God giving you the strength. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel. He can work it in you. And through that, take this thing that we didn't know for sure, but now when we go through the Old Testament, it's all over the Old Testament. Whether you're reading Cain and Abel or Abraham and Sarah, you're reading the stories of the judges, you're reading through the prophets, you're reading through the kings, The message is the same over and over and over again. You can't do it, God is saying, but I can do it. I will do it. 
don't forget the strength comes from me. So we can say, when I am weak, then I'm strong. That's something we grow up in church saying. But if you ever really think about it, does it really make any sense? When I'm weak, I'm strong. When I'm strong, when I'm strong, I'm strong. Now, when you're weak, recognizing you can't do it, then you're strong because now God is going to step in, roll up his sleeves, and be like, now I'm going to do it. But I'm not going to do it in you if you're going to look back on it and go, yeah, I mean, God did it, but I mean, I, I did this part of it. No, you're still thinking too highly of yourself there. It's when you're at your weakest that God is able to come in and say, now that I do it in you, you'll be able to look back and go, I knew that wasn't me. Now I'm going to show off. Because you won't try to steal any of my glory. The glory is mine, and I'm going to use you to show off my strength through you. You're, you're my exhibit A to the world of what I can do through somebody who's powerless and weak. Finally, look how he closes. He says, this message is made known to all nations. He's Part of that mystery was that this is going to open up to everybody, the whole world, because God commanded it according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. And that phrase we've seen here before, but that's exactly what he's after. It doesn't just say obedience, and it doesn't just say faith, because faith without obedience isn't real faith. And obedience without faith is just us trying really hard and getting nowhere, you see? But faith produces a kind of obedience that flows from faith so that I know if I was left to myself, I wouldn't be that kind of person. I wouldn't do those good things. I wouldn't be able to drop those bad things. But I can look back and say, but God must have stepped in because left to me, I'd be this messed up person. But God is doing something in my life. It's obedience of faith because it's by my placing faith in God. God, I trust you to make me who I'm supposed to be because I can't do it. That we start experiencing it and living it. So the charge for this passage is not to go do something specific, but to trust that God produces obedience in you when you have faith in him to do it. And he sets it up like this because it's wisdom, verse 27, to the only wise God. It's in his wisdom that he set it up this way. This is how he's going to secure glory forever. Secures glory by giving you the strength to live according to his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we don't have to leave here drumming up energy by ourselves, trusting in our own strength, because it would get us nowhere. So, Father, we ask now, even as we close in this song, you would supply us with the faith that we need to trust you, to trust that you will secure glory for yourself. You will Glorify your own name through doing big things through little old us, weak and unable us. And we come before you, and we're excited to see what you will do in our lives. Even sometimes the small things, the small habits that are, don't align with Christ's character. Some of them really big things that would immediately change our families, our marriages, our lives, maybe even our careers as you step in and make those adjustments to pull us out of the world's pattern and transform us to look more like Christ. Lord, work the truths down deep into our hearts as we sing, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close in this song.